This copyrighted podcast of the James Perspective has been paid for and funded by James M. Wilkerson. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of this podcast are a permutation and combination of words and sentences used in this podcast without the express written consent of James M. Wilkerson and the James Perspective is strictly prohibited. Good morning, guys. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. We got got four voices on here this morning, but one of them is going to lurk, what he says. We're going to call Dwayne the lurker. Good morning, Jim. Texas, Jim. Good morning. Your state has not been in the news as much as it's recently been. You had kind of a a, a lull in the action. Yeah. That's because things are working there. So. Oh. Except AT&T. Except AT&T. <laughs> Except AT&T. That's not Texas-based. So there you go. So I will let Jim introduce the topic for the day. Okay. Um, so I've been studying recently uh, early Christian worship of Jesus Christ as God. And so that's in a nutshell what we'll be discussing today. Okay. Well, let's bust that. Bust that. Can we, all right, so so what I do with a nutshell, when we do that in law. They have if you're running to go to an area of law you don't know, you go into a nutshell. They call it a nutshell, and it's a really basic outline of the law. <laughs> but then before you go argue anything, you need to expand that abbreviated version of the law. So I guess assuming that we're going to say that nutshell that you just said is getting ready to be expanded. Yes, it's going to be. Okay. Yeah, we're not going to leave it at that and say, okay, adios. <laughs> Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) I have one question. Uh Uh-huh. 17. Normally, they cover definitions at the beginning also, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what what would be the definition of worship that we're looking for? That's actually a really good question. So uh, people are, whatever I say, people, historians. So when the historians are looking at early Christianity, they're trying to figure out what classifies as worship. And... uh, a big player in this game is a guy named Larry Hurtado. Uh, I, I believe that he just recently passed, actually. But uh, he made a huge uh, impact on the uh, historiograph- historiography concerning cultic worship of Jesus Christ as God. And he sort of had an outline of six different uh, types of worship that accumulated into this, what, what he would call a cultic worship of Jesus Christ. And this cultic worship involved prayer. To Jesus, invocation to him, uh, meals that were presided uh, by Jesus. Uh, Jesus, I believe, I don't know if it was her, her Tata or Richard Bauckham that expanded on this point, but uh, it seemed to be uh, sharing the same throne as God. Um, what would be some other things? There were two. There were two other things, but that, that for some reason they're escaping me at the top of my head right now. So that's sort of her, her argument, and it is. A lot of people, and I'm not talking about just Christians, like uh, non-Christians and Christians alike, all sort of look at Hurtado's thesis and say, yeah, that sounds about right. Um, There are some who argue otherwise, though, such as James McGrath. And James McGrath, he's also a very big player. And he argues that it wasn't necessarily cultic worship, but it was sacrificial worship to, to God. And this sacrificial worship 
was never given to Jesus. So he kind of argues for a lower view of, of Jesus as God. However, he hasn't made nearly as much of an impact. And, and I, I could go into this a little bit, but in his book, which he makes this thesis, he doesn't really, I think, substantiate this argument that it was sacrificial worship that dis- differentiated between whether you're worshiping to God or whether you're just sort of practicing some like horoscope, you know, like he's trying to make a difference there. And he says the difference between horoscopes and worshiping something as God is sacrifice. But he doesn't really substantiate it with with much. Uh, in fact, I don't think he substantiates with anything. I, I just read this book and it seems like it's more of an assertion than it is backed up by evidence. And for this reason, I think people still go with Hurtado's viewpoint that, look, it's people who pray, uh, invoke, uh, call Jesus curious. Uh, they they uh, have a meal where he's presiding over it as their living God. And so anyway, all that all that adds up to cultic worship of Jesus. Uh, and I think that that's the more substantiated argument. Cool. I think I think we need definitions to his definitions. Well, yes, I, I'm thinking the same Sorry. thing because <laughs> the thing that uh, we got to clarify: Are we just talking about New Testament, or are we talking about uh, we don't even see anybody being a Christian until the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ and His ascension? Uh, it, I mean, were there, in other words, can we call the disciples Christians? Uh, or do we have to wait until after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Christian is mentioned once in the New Testament. Uh, it doesn't seem to be a very widespread use of the word. So if they're going to look at themselves as Christians, I would say that that's more of our putting that label onto them. But like I would say, yes, you could call them Christian. In the, in the short, yes, you can, because they were Christ followers. and even though even though the gospels presented many embarrassing stories about these church leaders they nonetheless had followed him before and after his death resurrection ascension okay because actually the shepherds when they came uh, after the appearance of angels in the sky uh, they came to uh, where jesus was maybe jesus was and they worshiped him and the magi years later when they came to wherever uh, baby Jesus was at that time, uh, they also worshiped him. So it started from square one as far as worshiping Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the issue becomes whether they're bowing down to the king, like Messiah, or whether they're bowing down to God. That's where a lot of this debate happens. Um, and again, I think that the I think that the argument weighs heavily in favor of the earliest Christian view Jesus as God. I think the most persuasive argument probably is that the New Testament writers, all of them, I think, I might be wrong on that, most of them, if not all of them, took Old Testament texts that referred to Yahweh and replaced Yahweh with Jesus in those texts. And so that's a difficult one to get around, like particularly whenever you're seeing these earliest writings, particularly Paul, um, who's a Pharisee, he knows very well the law, he knows very well what he's citing from Psalms and from Isaiah. He's taking these texts that have Yahweh in it, um, and he's he's taking Yahweh out, putting Jesus in there. And in these texts that 
these Old Testament texts where the Hebrew language would have Yahweh. Uh, the Greek translates it into Kyrios, uh, which is the name for Lord. And uh, the New Testament writers use Kyrios in the context of these Hebrew texts to refer to Jesus Christ. So that means that they're calling Jesus Christ, in a sense, God there. All right. I'm not even getting into Romans 9, 5. And you guys can look up Romans 9, 5. But there, Jesus Christ is explicitly called God. I think that the grammatical construction makes the most sense if Jesus Christ is called God there. Uh, Thomas Schreiner lays out a really good argument for the lay reader in his book because there's a lot of there's a lot of technical issues at stake here. But the grammatical construction of Romans 9, 5 makes the most sense if it says uh, uh, Christ the, or Jesus, the Messiah, who is God over all blessed forever. And so uh, many, many skeptics and Christians say, yeah, the earliest Christians are calling him God here, not just Lord or not just Messiah or not just King, that Christ is actually God over creation. Well, John uh, 1034, uh, Jesus is being kind of uh, drilled, grilled uh, by, I don't know, the Pharisees, I'm not real sure, Um, but uh, they ask him something about his relationship with uh, uh, Yahweh, and the language that he used in the Greek, he said, I am. And in in the language, it says that he was declaring that he was Yahweh. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, that's that's when uh, he's really made everything clear. Yeah, well, uh, the argument presented by James McGrath, if I'm getting this right, is that whatever Jesus Christ says, before Abraham, I am. He's taken on the name of Yahweh. And yes, that's that's the one. Spoke, yes. Yeah, yeah. But we already have an instance, according to McGrath, and we can delve into this a little bit more because I think we're starting to get really, really into the weeds here. But McGrath is talking about uh, his use of Yahweh or I am in that instance in a similar way to the angel Yahweh, uh, which Yahweh is a combination of. Yahweh and El, both are names for God. And this is in the Testament of Abraham. But Yahweh is still subordinate to God in this in this uh, apocalypse. It's, it's a it's a it's apocalyptic literature. That's what it is. It is it's outside the Bible, but it's called the Testament of Abraham. In it, you have an angel who takes on the name of God, uh, which is Yahweh. And this angel is to carry out God's judgment on uh, God's creation. However, the angel is clearly subordinate to God in the Testament of Abraham because he's bowing down to God and worship there at the end alongside Abraham. And so the idea that the point that McGrath is making is that you could take on the name of God and still be subordinate to God. Does that make sense? Well, um, it's interesting. <laughs> yeah. That's all right. I can say yeah. about that. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. uh, what I read last night, it, it was pretty clear. In the text that I read, and what they what was said about the text was that he was saying that he was I am Yahweh. Well, right. I'm, well, I'm, I think that yeah, yeah. And I, I like I'm sorry for cutting you off because you're the only person I can't see, so I'm sorry. Um, but the uh, I think the more convincing argument. Hey, hey, buddy. <laughs> I think that the more convincing <laughs> argument is what you're saying. Like throughout John's gospel. What we see time and again are the Pharisees saying, you are making yourself God. Like like that's their sort of accusation to Jesus right. Christ. 
And and as a as a reader, you could read through John and, and you see John clearly saying that. And I think James McGrath's argument really doesn't address that thoroughly. Like he tries addressing it and he says, really, what the Pharisees are saying is that you're not acting as God's agent and therefore really you're offending God. But if you look at what the Pharisees are saying, they're saying clear as day, you're making yourself God. You're making yourself Yahweh. And so they're really not thrilled about that. It's not so much that Jesus Christ is claiming to be God's agent. And he's not acting like it. It's that he's he's making these outlandish claims in first century Judaism, which is entirely monotheist. I need to add this. OK, neither neither the day here actually is clear. So it's not clear as day, nor is your analogy as clear as day. I am lost as the is a goose, whatever that means. Yeah. yeah, I was I was afraid that we might be getting lost. That's my saying, movie. sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I was afraid that we were gonna get lost there a little bit. So what's the uh the analogy with Yahweh you're having trouble with? You talking about me? Yeah, you said you're lost. No, man, it's like it's like I'm in the woods and I'm lost and it's a gray sky. I can't look up and find out which way is north. Well I have no idea what we're talking about. Well well I'll make it easier. Because if you really want to look how Christians worship the Lord, uh, then look at the upper room. And uh, they look like drunk people up there. Uh, and and again, in 1 Peter uh, 2.4, it says that we are priests. And then in Hebrews 13, uh, let's see, uh, chapter 13, verse 15, it talks about now we don't offer uh, the blood of, of lambs, goats, bulls. We offer praise. So our worship to God, the praise that we give to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the Father God, to the Holy Spirit, the praise that we give is our sacrifice. That's what the Bible calls it. So now the way that we are to uh, come before the Lord is with uh, praise and worship. That is our offering. That is the early way. And one of the uh, things that I say so many times over and over again when I go out and preach, it used to be that the Baptists, the Methodists, you name them, and uh, there was at least some amens in the church. Amen. And today, thank you for that amen. Uh, <laughs> and today, you can go into these churches, and it looks like you're having the funeral service of Jesus or something. Because nobody nobody gives an amen or a hand clap or lifting their hands. And the Bible said, let men everywhere lift up holy hands. That's a sign of worship. It was a sign of worship uh, even in the Old Testament when Moses lifted his hands up. As long as he had his hands lifted up, they were uh, winning the battle. Uh, when his hands fell down, they were losing the battle. And uh, Aaron and her got over there to where it was at because they could see what was happening. One got on one side, lifted one hand, the other on the other side, they started winning again. There's something about the worship of God that brings the power of God down. And the Word of God says that all the Word of God, this is New Testament, all the Word of God is yes, but it says, let the amen rise up out of us. Well, so that's, you know, I'm just getting on a little uh, tear here. Let me, can, uh, can, uh, before, uh, you, before you go, Jim, before yeah. you talk, let me, let me see, you know, one time I told, I think I've said this many times on here. One time when I was at tech, I, I had an engineer, I had a engineering level physics class 
and I would come in and they'd had a, a baby physics class before that. And this, this little girl was up there talking to the professor and says, I don't know how to do this problem. And he says, well, where, what have you done? And she said, I don't know what to start. And he said, no, no, you start and then I can help you. So I, what I wasn't fair, what I did to Jim and said, I don't get it. Let me tell you what, let me see what I think I get. And then maybe you can help me from there, Jim. Okay. I think you're, you're trying to figure out when was it that they started to re- worship Jesus as God. And yes. some of those terms, one of those terms that you're using, and I'm not sure which one it was, but one of those could be God, but in the name God, but inferior to God, the father. Is that yeah, what I'm curious? Curious. Yes. Okay. So, so, so curious so, so means curious, curious is used as Lord, lowercase L and Lord, uppercase L. Okay. So I could, I could refer to Caesar as curious. Yes. Yes. Okay. Got it. Mm-hmm. All right. So, yeah. all right. So, so you're wanting to know when did he go? When did they worship him as what? As Elohim? It would be, it would be hot. Theos. Yeah, so the God, like like God with the, the definitive article in front of it. Theos, and then all of that, ah, theos, yeah. Okay, and so then to, to tie that into what, what Chris just went through is that clearly now we are worshiping him as God, right? Mm-hmm. As the yep. God, mm-hmm. right? All right. Now, what I guess I'm trying to figure out is Lord, God, which one are we talking about? What word are we talking about? So my in argument any, in English. Yes, no, I got you. My argument <laughs> my argument is that the earliest Christians were worshiping Jesus as God, like James Earl Jones voice God. Gotcha. I got you. Mm-hmm. All right. So so the one that was speaking to Moses. Yes. Well so so we you know, you know how the Trinitarian, you know how Trinity works. Three persons, one God. So we're talking about Jesus here in the Godhead, which is a that's a common term. That's not a term that they used back in the earliest days. But yeah, the Christians, I, got I, I said it wrong. You're right. I got you. Yeah, yeah. So all right. So so, so what you're trying to say because you really did when when Dwayne asked that. Now I'm mad at him for asking. First, I was proud of him for asking. Now I'm <laughs> mad at him for asking it. You went off into like seven different ways of worship, and you mm-hmm. used the word cult. And as soon as you said that, <laughs> you lost me. Ah, okay, well, got, I, it. got it. I thought yeah. for a minute that that we forgot about the Trinity, that we are Trinitarians. We know we're not forgetting <laughs> that. We're wanting to know when they realized that Jesus was part of the Godhead. So that's exactly what we're addressing. We are to pray to the Father in the name of Jesus. So how's that fit in, Jim? It's cultish. Oh, as far as yeah, it's cultish. No, I think please. Yeah, no, I well, there's there's direct prayer to Jesus in the New Testament. And so, like, I th- we are to pray to the name of the Father or to the Father in the name of Jesus. But we could also pray directly to Jesus as, as presented, uh, like, like as Paul said, an example, as others said, example for us. By the way, one of the things that you said, Chris, reminded me of the other form of cultic worship. I'll get back to you that on cultic <laughs> worship. But but, but I'm thinking of Charles Manson. We yeah, move I don't on. like that word. <laughs> <laughs> We we can we can figure out another word to use for the purposes of this podcast. That's the technical word that's used. It's been co-opted by, uh, you know, because of all the bad cult right. references. Yeah, Jim but Jones it was a like strict 
uh, way to talk about religion at one time. Right. And so, so anyway, let's let's go with the proper worship of Jesus. I don't know. Uh, so anyway, one of the <laughs> one of the ways one of the ways that that was conducted was through him to Jesus. And these hymns you can find in various places, uh, such as uh, Philippians 2, 6, 11. That's like the most famous one um, to where uh, it says that uh, uh, what, what's, the, what's that hymn? Like, even though he found equality, even though he had equality with God, uh, he did not use it to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the form of human nature, uh, uh, becoming obedient, even obedience to death. Therefore, God exalts him. The highest place gave the name that's above every name that the name of Jesus every knee should bow. That's that's a hymn right there in Philippians two six through eleven. All right, I paraphrased it, but essentially what they're doing is they're saying like every knee in creation is bowing to the name of Jesus. All right, it's that's the thing is it's at the name of Jesus. It's not at the name of Yahweh or or or, or like the, the name given to that angel Yahweh. It's that Jesus name is now the name that's above every name. Right. And that's the name that every knee is bowing to. All right. That's extraordinarily high Christology. That's a technical term, but that's extraordinarily high praise to a human being who just died on a cross. All right. And, and does his does his name not mean savior? His name does mean savior. Yes. yes. So so Jesus Joshua. Yeah. Jesus means Jesus or Joshua. That means savior. Okay, and Jesus Christ. Yeah, there's a lot of symbolism in that. All right. Mm -hmm. But the yes, the point here is that first, this hymn raises Jesus name above every name. And at this name, every knee will bow. It doesn't matter where you are, heaven, earth or hell. You're going to be bowing to this name. But the second thing is that this is a pre Pauline hymn. Okay, so that means that this is before Paul. Paul took this hymn and put it into his writing. This is a very, very early hymn that we don't know necessarily what year it emerged, but we do know that the first generation of Christians were calling Jesus' name, the name that's above every name, at which every knee will bow. Okay, yes. Okay. So that's a form of worship right there, right? I'm trying to get back to, to because you lost me immediately after Dwayne's question. Okay. Let's because talk about the cultish, cultish <laughs> worship. What does that mean? That just means that if you're like, what does it look like for someone to worship a God? All right. Because um, cult does not, cult in ancient times does not have the same negative connotations as it does today. Just as Gwen said, that has been co-opted by Charles Manson and Jim Jones. Yeah. Yeah. Let me, let me, I use this example a lot because it's easy. People understand the word fantastic. It used to be a gruesome thing. In other words, a fantastic train wreck. But people have taken that word and use it as a positive. That's fantastic, meaning congratulations or whatever. And you would be, you would look, people would look at you crazy if you called it a fantastic wreck. It's completely changed its term. Right. All right. So I'm going to agree with that, but I don't use the word fantastic anymore to define something bad. I'd use it to define something good. Why can't you come up with a better word than cultish now? <laughs> well, it it helps us. I don't know, and that's something that I need to that I need to work on to be able to sort of deliver in a podcast format. That's the thing that this podcast is good for. It helps me be able to take what I've been reading 
and be able to present it in a way that's digestible for someone who hasn't been reading the same things. But all right. So when you mean cult, what do you mean? Yeah. Define it. So, so what I mean is that there that there were practices in the ancient times that that indicated someone was worshiping an entity as God. So okay. cultic means like well, the way in which someone confusing worshiped. mind control cult with cult. Well, I, what I use how I define it nowadays is something that there are there are severe penalties for trying to leave that group. That's what I call cultish. Now that that's just James's. I don't think I've ever read the definition of cult. That's just how I've interpreted it. So I look at Jim Jones. You try to leave, they make you drink the Kool Aid. That's a cult. You try to leave Charles Manson, they shoot you. They don't let you leave. Yeah. yeah all, so you just saying all that has to do with coercion, and the the big thing I see uh, as a youth group member in our church we had a youth minister that took us through cults and occults over a two-year period of studying and he wanted us to understand using the modern definition of cult what all those were to kind of inoculate us against being led astray and i i love that study and i think what the difference is is i have learned over my lifetime that God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are of free will, and cults are of not free will. They're very much coercion involved. Okay, so so with all that said, I'll, I'm going to let Jim try again so I understand it. I want to know Thank what you. the real word is, and I do like to know what word really is supposed to mean, so I'm I'm very open to what you're saying cult means. Yeah, we could, we could go ahead and say religion. So I think that like like it's their 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 religious practices. I think that the ancient Greeks would have seen it uh, in the same context what we call religion today. They would say, "Well, this is my religion," but they didn't use that sort of language in ancient Greece or ancient Rome. They used cults, sects, whatever whatever you, word you want to use. They didn't use okay. religion necessarily. The Romans definitely would use the word sect, s e c t. Yeah, sect was more of a negative connotation. Like this is an offshoot of something. I think if I'm if I'm reading it correctly. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah. So, but anyway, so all that's to say, we we could go ahead and say, what are the what are the religious practices that indicate you're worshiping an entity as God? All right, and so that's where Hurtado says, look, these six factors, and and Bauckham adds a seventh one. I think Bauckham, Richard Bauckham is his name. He's kind of a more controversial one. Like for some reason or another, uh, uh, non-Christian scholars who study Christianity, uh, they they tend to agree more with Hurtado than Bauckham. But I think Bauckham makes a very good point here is that, look, in none of these texts do these uh, principal agents or these, or these uh, angels who hold a high position of authority do they share the same throne as God? You might get a text, I think, where it's it's ambiguous whether Moses, you know, gets to go up and sort of share the throne with God. But this was in a much later text. So there, there's a lot of complications in that that I don't necessarily know if we can get into today. But the point is, is that uh, that Bauckham is making is that Jesus Christ shares the same throne as God over and over and over again in these texts. It's not that Jesus Christ is exalted to the second highest place in Philippians. Two six eleven is that he's exalted to the highest place 
And then Revelation makes it abundantly clear that Jesus Christ, that the Lamb and God are occupying the same throne. And in Revelation, like you, you sort of have these other hymns that seem to uh, take on a pre-Johannan tradition as well, meaning that these uh, hymns were produced before time. I'm going I'm to need to interrupt you because I, if I don't understand it, I doubt the others do. Okay, but let's, let's back you off. I mean, I know I, this is good stuff. All right, but let me let me just make sure I got what you're talking about is that the first form of worship is a religious worship. Yes. And yes, the reason yes, you're going religious. into this is, is you're showing that as this religion, they're naming him as God. Is that what we're getting at? Well, so rarely do they use the word hatheos. All right. That, that's only found in Romans 9, 5. And hatheos is God. Okay. Curios is what they use. And a large what what appears to be the reason for this is so that Jesus Christ is not to be confused with the Father. He's God. He's not the Father. All right. Well, yeah, what so, you're talking about is exactly what the Jehovah Witnesses argue. Okay, so I need to understand it because they are definitely saying he's little C God. He's Lord, but he's little Lord. He's not big. Lord. Uh, that's not exactly what I'm arguing. It's not. So I would not say that what I'm arguing is exactly what they're arguing. That's what they're arguing. No, what I'm arguing is that is the traditional Trinitarian view. Jesus is capital G God, not the Father. Okay. Yeah. All right. So so to, I, I don't know if the others are having this thick skull like I am, but to make sure I understood, because you were you went into several forms of worship. One of them was the the cultish, but the cult, but really meaning religious worship. Mm-hmm. What are the others so I can compare and contrast? So the others, so there's prayer invocation um what's the invocation uh talking to jesus in the vocative but also alongside god and invoking his name to give like like whether it's in a letter or something like that um oh now i know why the catholics call it invocation all right i'm good you just you just made a new wrinkle in my brain all right um and then uh there's the lord's supper which jesus christ is presiding over it as the living god there's him um and after I, I forget necessarily what the other ones are like this is this okay. is my fault but mm-hmm. that's okay no 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 this is awesome stuff do not do not you're, you're teaching us it's not easy especially when you're learning all right mm-hmm. so when chris the first time that he started talking and he went into preacher mode that would have been worship um whatever what what were you saying again chris as far as what the very first is? part you were looking at your notes and you were talking about Moses raising his hands and all those things. Well, that wasn't in my notes, but but it's a fact. But the the other thing, I think it was Hebrews thirteen fifteen, where where it says that we offer sacrifices of praise. And so, obviously, we're not catching up a oh, lamb I, or a I, bullock I, and taking it and cutting it and and presenting it to God. But we, we our praise and our worship is a sacrifice it's called a sacrifice to god all right so so that that helps me ask the question and and so yeah and and my argument which which i can go at two different levels because even if you go to church that sings hymns and that's wonderful because the old hymns um they they are praise to the lord uh telling you what he did for you and etc etc they're they're good Uh, in fact our theology our christian theology is in a lot of the hymns. And so 
that is a form of praise in the church. Just because you go to a church that doesn't necessarily clap their hands or lift their hands doesn't mean that you're not praising the Lord. But you need to be focused on, if you're singing hymns, you need to be focused on what what the hymns are saying, because that can be uh, your, your praise going up to God, which is a sacrifice of praise. God looks looks at that very favorable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And I think so, so my, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, uh, my only thing is, is I'm trying to, to see where that slots in. All right, first of all, I want to make sure that nobody thinks I'm criticizing. I like it when Chris goes into preacher mode. I want him to. All right. Now, with that said, he's talking about a praise. I'm assuming that's the religious worship you're talking about, right? Yeah, yeah. And by the way, I have the six points here. I found them. Okay. But, okay. Yeah, I want to go through them. Okay. All right. So this was this was an important point that uh, I forgot to include was uh, the invocation of Jesus' name in the initiative, or in the initiation rite, which is baptism. All right. So to be initiated in the Christian culture or in the Christian religion, um, you have to be baptized. This baptism is in Jesus' name. Okay. The second one is the ritual invocation of Jesus in the worship setting, meaning that you're singing hymns in Jesus' name, uh, pray, praising God uh, or praising Jesus alongside God in a worship context. Um, the other one is the corporate ritual ritual confession of Jesus's exalted status, meaning Jesus is Lord, or Romans nine five, Jesus the Messiah who is God over all, blessed be forever. Um, Then uh, the fourth one is prayer either to God in Jesus' name or even directly to Jesus. We see both forms of that in the New Testament. Uh, Five is singing hymns, honoring him as the regular component of corporate worship. I think five and two could go together. Um, And then six is the designation of Christian corporate of the Christian corporate meal, which is the Lord's Supper. All right. And so you have Jesus Christ who's presiding over the Lord's Supper as the living God. Um, and so all these things combine into an unparalleled worship of Jesus Christ in the Jewish and even in the uh, Roman context or, or, or Greek context in the sense that he's not God, lowercase g, like a God among other gods. He is God, the exclusive God, the highest exalted God that demands worship from all of creation. And there are consequences if you do not worship. Okay. Uh, that helps me. That helps me a lot. I, you know what I'd like to do? I'd like you to to text that to, to us and let one of us put that up on the the uh, Twitter, X Twitter. Okay. So, so people who are listening to this can go see those and on their, you know, with their leisure instead of having to try to write it down real quick. Yeah, all right. Got it. All right. All right. So so that answers that does. I get it. I get what you're saying is. Um, does anybody else have any questions on that? No, I thought. Um, the idea that out of the gate, Christians accepted Jesus as divine, I think, is where the crux of this is at. Uh, at least today's discussion anyway. And I think it's interesting that there are references to, you know, in at least from Paul about that type of thing. So that is interesting to me that, you know, because generally it's thought of as it didn't develop until the third or fourth century, but we have first century writings referencing it like, yeah, of course that is. We know that, you know, kind of thing. So yeah, anyway. yeah. 
Well, I think that so as far as what I'm reading, I've been I've been trying to you know tackle all sides of this issue, and I think Dallas Theological Seminary does a really good job of collecting books from skeptics to the most conservative Christians. So you're able sort of to go into this section. They'd be like, all right, I got ten books right here with ten different authors who span the whole spectrum, like on what this issue is. And it's difficult to find one who says that Jesus is not in some sort divine. They might say that he's lowercase g God, but the the problem still that they must grapple with is this is an unprecedented status given to a human who just died in the Jewish context. There's no example in Jewish literature that you could find where a human being was taken and given some sort of divinity in Jewish monotheism. By the way, I took your question about that, about the hallucination or hallucination, mm-hmm. and I gave it to Grok, and it said, go see a psychiatrist. I'm not joking. <laughs> 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 yeah. And by the way, so so let's do a quick, let's do a quick detour here, okay? Because I want to talk about that real quick. The general idea. And we can come right back to the exalted status of God. All right. This is going to be exalted status of Jesus um, as God. And I I also want to tie in why this is important for arguments concerning the resurrection. Okay. But to go on a side street here concerning hallucination theories, the idea, the general idea presented by historians who are not Christians, but who study Christianity, um, they argue that. The disciples experienced some sort of visionary, some sort of visionary experience. Like they, they, they hallucinated. But hallucination again is like uh, the use of word, the word cultic. We think of like drugs and things like that for hallucinations. But people actually hallucinate quite frequently, especially whenever uh, they experience the loss of a loved one. Like you can feel, touch, see, like your loved one, and, and these could be powerful experiences. However. No one in the literature that I could find concluded from this that someone raised from the dead, right, from the grave. What they believed is that this person lived on in some sort of bodilyless spiritual afterlife. That's the conclusion that people draw. They think that like these guys, that movie, well, is th- that stupid movie, Ghost, is not that good a movie. But that's exactly right. There's, there's their soul did not get taken up to heaven. They believed that they just continued to exist in spirit. Yes, they continue to exist in spirit. But even even some people today who experience these bereavement hallucinations, many of them are Christian. All right. They experience these bereavement hallucinations after they experience the death of a loved one, especially if they see the violent death of a loved one. All right. They experience these visions and they they it's it's not that they seem to be real in the sense that these people have raised from the dead, like from their grave, but they're real in the sense that these people's spirits are in heaven, like they're in heaven with God. Now, the question becomes, if these hallucinations are so common, and if this is the experience that the Gospels are supposed to have had, then why, or not the Gospels, the disciples are supposed to have had, then why are they the only ones that I, as far as I could tell, as far as what's in these skeptics' research, why are the disciples the only one who concluded that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? And by the way, there are different ways of being able to go about starting Christianity. They could have said, look, 
Jesus Christ is exalted to God, like his spirit lives on with God, he's still the Messiah and he's going to come back down whenever the resurrection happens and he's going to lead the way of the resurrection. They didn't conclude that though. What they concluded was Jesus Christ rose from the dead, rose from the grave, right? And they had every means available to them to say otherwise, and they did not. So one has to have to ask that question. Like, I thought that it would be easy to find a hallucination where it convinced someone that someone rose from the dead, like that they rose from the grave. But there's like, as far as I could tell, there's not a single one. And that is including uh, the research done by these skeptics who they've, they've done all sorts of research on bereavement experiences, on hallucinations. Like you take it, you go read these books, you won't find a single example of a person who hallucinated and said that person rose from the dead. That person rose from the grave. And so you why violent? immediately. You said, especially when it was violent. What? Why? I don't know. For some reason, violent images produce like like make it more likely for you to hallucinate the person that you love, that you just witnessed uh, experience a violent death. Uh, you experience hallucinations of them. They're very vivid. So you didn't have to see the violent death. You just had to know about it. No, you can see it like like it's it typically happens. It, the people who witness a violent death are the ones who are more likely to receive super you. vivid hallucinations. And so that and, and that's from the research done by these skeptics like Gerd Ludman, uh, Bart Ehrman. Like, go read these guys. Actually, go read them. I, I can also give you some of these uh, some of these sources. But go read particularly the sections in there where they're talking about hallucinations because they do a good job of of doing the research on hallucinations. Like if you have seen someone that you love experience a violent death, then you you have a very high likelihood of receiving a hallucination of them still living on. It's actually quite common. And so um, and so anyway, like go read it and you'll see that people have concluded like, oh, well, their their souls are living on, they're with God in heaven, and and it helps people become more at peace with what they just saw. All right. But nowhere in these hallucinatory experiences do people say my loved one rose from the grave. Yeah. I, my, my thing about it on, on, from somebody who's definitely going to remain lay, I'll never become a professional. Better not ever say never. But I, I don't see ever me becoming a, a professional in, in, you know, Bible teaching or anything. Um, I don't know of anybody who, you know, from the, just a rank and file is thinks that it was hallucinations. They think he really was there, right? That's not a, it's not a hallucination. You've always looked considered like that. No, this that's what they saw. Yeah. In, in well, fact, uh, the text, the way the text, one of the texts reads is that not only did Jesus come up out of the grave, but many people that had been dead for years were seen walking around in Jerusalem. There's a lot of, there's a lot of conversation over that text that I haven't gotten into, but boy, is that text triggering for a lot of people. Yeah. I like, well, it. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, I wonder like, why. Anyway. <laughs> and, and that wasn't a hallucination. It, that was something that they, that, that the way I see that part of the scripture written, that it happened. And, yeah. and, and, and Jesus, uh, the scripture even says that uh, after the resurrection, he led captivity captive. And he gave gifts unto men. Well, what captivity captive was he leading? Well, I've always understood and was taught that it was uh, just like uh, 
the the dead, the dead believers were in paradise, which had a great gulf separating them from hell. And Jesus went into that area, uh, preached about his life or what he did. And uh, and then I've always understood that those are the captivity that he led captive, that he led them up into the sky, heaven, just like uh, where he went. Yeah. Yeah. This is one of those verses that Scott Kellen would bring up a lot. Really? Yes. And I'm picturing the night of the living dead. I I don't know what to think about it, so I am interested to see what Jim was trying to say about it. What do you what do you say? It's controversial, meaning that some people don't believe that happened. Yeah, it's controversial even among Christian circles. Now, I think Michael Icona changed his view. I'm pretty sure he did um, on this, but in the resurrection of Jesus, look I, here. Before I say anything, Chris, I am not arguing against your view. All right. I'm more inclined to think this was a historical event. Okay. I'm not making any definitive inclusion, uh, conclusion about it. All I'm saying is that before I go into this, like, hold your view. Don't make, don't let what I say deter anything about what you just said. All right. Not that you would. You're, this is, (laughs) this is a cop. This is a compliment, but you're a rather hard-headed fellow sometimes. And so this is good. Um, and so anyway, hold on to it. All right. But Michael Icona, in his book, The Resurrection of Jesus, argued that this is probably some sort of apocalyptic in- imagery that Matthew is including in this gospel. Um, and that it's meant to make a theological point that is yeah. not necessarily historical. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Another strange, strange story in the Bible is when... Um, this fella is carrying a, a dead person through a cemetery, and there is an enemy army coming against him. And so he's in the cemetery. He's carrying this guy into the cemetery, and he gets in a hurry, and he drops the guy into a, a, a grave that has fallen through. And he falls on the body and comes back alive. It just happens that that person that was in that grave, that body that was in that grave, and that person would have been in paradise, uh, was Elisha. And when the dead body hit Elisha's body, came back alive. Get up, get up, get up, get up out of that grave. Well, that's about <laughs> Jesus, but that's a good song. <laughs> you could put it right there. Yeah. It's like, oh, it's like, it's like, it's it's way off here. Yeah. Well, uh, I I, I didn't think so for the simple reason, (laughs) for the simple reason we were talking about hallucination and we were talking about people that uh, uh, came back from the dead, like our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And and then we jumped over to others. And then I took you back into the Old Testament and showed you a very strange story. It is. Yeah, yeah, it is. And so. And so the thing is, like, whenever whenever we're compiling evidence, what we're trying to do is we're not compiling evidence necessarily for Christians, but for that that even secularists have to accept, like they're backed into a corner, essentially, because if you don't accept it, then all of a sudden you're just revealing your hand that it's dogmatism that's leading to your conclusions rather than any serious historical investigation. Right. And so whenever we have sources there in the Old Testament, they're talking about these things. I believe that it happened, okay? But they're singularly attested events, 
And they're also told in the context of a wider story that you could make the argument, let's say if you're reading Herodotus, who makes sort of claims about oracles predicting the future or something like that. Everybody who reads Herodotus is like, yeah, this probably didn't happen. This was probably told to help advance this story. Okay. I'm not saying that it didn't happen, but I'm saying that if we're going to read the Old Testament like Herodotus, secularists have a leg to stand on to be able to read the text that way. All right. And that's fine. And that's not going to be very good evidence to help us conclude that Jesus Christ, in fact, rose from the dead rather than he was hallucinated. Does that make sense? Well, let me ask because I want to make sure. All right. My understanding of Herodotus as opposed to the Thucydides, that Herodotus would write down what someone said happened. So he's not necessarily saying he witnessed it. He's saying that this person is saying that's what happened. Whereas Thucydides almost, if he didn't have a direct knowledge of it, he wouldn't write it down. Is that what right. you're getting at? Okay. Well, well, no, no, no. That's not that's not what I'm necessarily getting at because uh, Herodotus definitely did that. Like he was the first one who engaged in historiography in the sense of, hey, this is what a person says. This is what a person says. This is what I think happened. And so he's actually yes. engaging in other works. But there are so, there are other times where he just goes right through the story. And so uh, the, the the story that I'm thinking of is I think his name's Polycrates uh, in Samos. Polycrates was a tyrant. And Herodotus is sort of going on this side street like we're on right now. He's going on the side street while telling a broader story about um, about the conflict. I, I think it's between the Greeks and the Persians. Anyway, he decides to go on Polycrates, though, just for a little bit. And he goes into Polycrates. And in this story, he gives this odd, uh, he gives this odd little anecdote of uh, Polycrates coming back from Egypt to Samos. And while he's coming back, Polycrates throws his ring into the sea and says, if he gets his ring back, then that's a good sign. I'm paraphrasing right now, but that's a good sign that he has fortune and wealth and things like that coming his way. Well, a fisherman goes out to the sea. He fishes up the, uh, he, he brings up the fish. The fish has, uh, the fish is huge. And so the fisherman brings the fish over to Polycrates' chef and says, this fish is only worthy for a king. The chef cuts the fish up, finds a ring in it, realizes that it's Polycrates' ring, and he gives the ring to Polycrates, all right? Now, if you're reading his Herodotus straight through, you would think that this is this story he thinks is historical. He's, he's treating this like this is an event in Polycrates' life. However, historians look at this and say, look, this was a point that Herodotus was trying to make to help advance his story regarding the tyrant Polycrates. It wasn't really historical, but it helped, it helped advance what he was trying to make, the point that he was trying to make about Polycrates. Okay. Yeah. And so what's up? Well, I mean, just real quick, I took it, I took that kind of story in Herodotus to mean that it was important to him that you just wrote it down because that's what people were saying. That yeah, that, yeah. That, 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 that that is the history itself, is that that was a story going on. That's am I missing on that? No, you're not. But like the point that I'll make is we can read the Old Testament text that way. I got you. you. Could. Okay. You I got could. you. I, I got you. I got you. Mm -hmm. Good point. I got you. You're not supposed to look at your, the, the, the Old Testament is real stories. None of it is going to be, um, uh, uh anecdotal, not again, there's just, just, a, a report of what people were, were talking about at the time. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm not, I'm not saying that it was, but you could read it that way. All right. 
as like the the reason here here's what I'm saying is I have to start off with Jesus Christ first for me to look back at the Old Testament and say this stuff was historical. All right. Um, I believe that there's a lot of uh, archaeological evidence that verifies cities and things like that, but they could never verify the stories that you see in the Old Testament. Okay. The only way that I could go back to the Old Testament and say, yeah, this stuff, these stories, the miraculous all happens is because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That's the only way that I could do it. I, I, I think right. that you, what's up? Uh, well, I'm just trying to make sure I get it. Let's go now. Let's go forward to uh, to later time to Thucydides. Now, the argument with Thucydides, I thought, was that everything he wrote, other than his, other than the speeches that he made up, that he admitted that he made those speeches up. But if he said there were fourteen hundred men on the beach, you could count on it. He there was nothing in there like that Herodotus story in the ring. And is that how you're saying we should be interpreting? The New Testament is more Thucydides as opposed to um, Herodotus? No, I'm saying as Christians, as Christians believe in the Old Testament, like the Old Testament is is historical. That's that's what I am standing on that. All right. I'm saying I'm saying before before you are a Christian, it's going to be like I'm a Christian talking to non-Christian. I know that I don't have a leg to stand on if I just take the Old Testament by itself and tell them to accept it all as historical. I'm not going to go to oh, a secularist. Okay. Yeah, I'm not going to go to a secularist that way. What I'm going to go to a secularist, how, how I'm going to go to them, it, and it's not secularist, but an atheist or agnostic, how I would go to them first to say, let's talk about Jesus and let's let's forget about any sort of subject of inerrancy or any sort of subject of the historicity of the you. Old Testament. Let's only talk about Jesus right now and let's look at the evidence surrounding his resurrection because that's all that matters. And if that's not true, then fine, whatever. Don't buy Christianity because I shouldn't even buy it if that's not true. All right. And then step by step after that, after they realize the historicity of Jesus resurrection, then can you take them through these other through these other tenets of the religion where we find it legitimate? And I think that only by my accepting Jesus Christ as having literally raised from the dead, could I accept that these stories happened in the Old Testament. Because they're written so long ago, they're independent sources. We have very fragmented um, record of the history of that time. Like these sources don't tell the entire history of the world. And so, like, I don't really have any leg to stand on if I'm just taking them by themselves. But if Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and if Jesus Christ used the Old Testament the way that he did, and if Paul used the Old Testament the way that he did, and the New Testament writers used the Old Testament the way that he did, then guess what? That projects back onto the Old Testament that this stuff actually happened. All right. And these guys got a revelation from God that this stuff actually happened. And so I thoroughly believe that the Old Testament is historical only because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Well, I understand where you're coming from. Um, I don't. <laughs> it all the way I look at it is like this. And, and really, I'm glad you uh, mentioned the Pauline epistles because. I would be looking at I would be looking at a lot of that, and I would be looking about um, what the scripture says about after the resurrection of Jesus, um, the 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 many witnesses and the many things that happened that was a witness of his resurrection. Um, but then the main thing is 
I see a, a system of truth that comes out of the Old Testament into the New Testament, and that is it's the presence of God in the New Testament, it's the presence of God. When you receive Jesus as your Savior, he is within you, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so uh, then I would look at the Old Testament, I say, now, they did not have this new birth experience, but they had the Spirit of God upon them. And everything takes me back to the Spirit of God. And in the beginning, the, the Spirit of God was was over the, the earth, and God began to speak this world into his existence. And uh, this, this place that just a big mass, and we could go into all kinds of things of why the world was like that at that time, and then and, and God begins to speak it back into existence. But I'm, I'm not, I don't need to go into that. I don't want to go into that. But my main point is, is that the presence of God is in us because of the new birth. And in the Old Testament, the presence of God was upon them. And Elijah got, um, Elisha got a double portion of what Elijah had. And that's the reason he was able to do what he did. The presence of God. Today, drug addicts, they get saved. To me, they're some of the best Christians there are because they understand what they were uh, trapped in and who set them free. They have no doubt about that. And so they're, they're, uh, I use the terminology, they're on fire for Jesus Christ. They're a walking billboard of Jesus Christ. So the presence of God is, is so important, Old Testament and New Testament. We got a different thing under the New Testament because the presence is within us. Jim, may I ask you a question? I agree. Yeah, I do. I agree with you. I mean, I always do. I mean, I amen. just say amen so you'll know. Amen. <laughs> Let me ask you a question, Jim. It, 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 it concerns me about your old man's um, memory and how I think. I, I, I sometimes think maybe I'm, I'm losing it. I read Herodotus twice. I don't remember that story about the ring. What is it that makes you remember that story? What? Tell me how your brain's working. <laughs> well, I did a project on Polycrates uh, okay. in Samus uh, while I was uh, finishing my master's in history at Old Dominion. And so, anyway, I did a project on it. I love the project. It's still one of my favorite papers that I've done because I was trying to reconstruct sort of what the government structure was there. And to me, I'm not necessarily sure how much I would buy into my argument. But it is a good theory, I think, that Polycrates' system was a system of a, a, a patronage, like a patron-client system. Anyway, we don't have to go into that. No, no, no I get that. I get I, I get why you remember it now. I mean, it's, yeah. it's an excellent story. I mean, it would be one that I could use as examples, and I'm, I'm surprised. I will say this, and I know this is way off. I, I'm, my brain works better, connects better with Thucydides, where it's all facts, just the facts, ma'am. You know, he he goes into the facts and he does have his parables, which are we know there he doesn't even deny that they're they're made up. But if he says there were fourteen hundred people on that beach, he's he's Matthew. You can book it. And he if it were fourteen hundred and one, he would have said it. He was very, very, very specific in it. But I'm 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 jealous that I don't remember Herodotus because he does go into those stories that are awesome. They're they're awesome. All right. So going back to it now, Jim. We don't have much time left. I've got to try to understand why 
does the resurrection make the Old Testament real to you? Because if the resurrection happened, Jesus Christ is God. They worship Jesus Christ as God. I don't think that there's any way that you can explain that worship of Jesus Christ as God from some sort of hallucination or legend or conspiracy or anything like that, especially whenever you consider that the apostles went to their graves with this belief without raising an army. They were empathetic to the people that they were preaching to. They were trying to spread this word, and they thought that the judgment was coming perhaps in their lifetime. So this was something that was very urgent. There's nothing about it that seems to be fabricated, and hallucinations don't get us to the point that the disciples worship Jesus as God. That just doesn't make any sense. Um, there's a lot of there's there's a combination of things that don't make sense. So anyway, all of this is to say that Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is God, and He's using the Old Testament the way that He used it. He's talking about Jonah as this was a historical. Okay. Event. And then and then if you have Paul that's using the Old Testament that's talking about these things as these are historical events, and then you have all the other New Testament writers that look at the Old Testament saying these were all historical events. That the creation of the world is not just a series of random events that this all has a purpose it all has you can see a fourfold narrative happening the creation fall redemption restoration you see this all playing out and then all of a sudden the the history of the world makes sense like this narrative i understand that made it yeah now i get it i'm glad i stayed with it where you were coming from i'm I'm, I'm glad i stayed with it because i wasn't getting it because i'll say this what was going through my mind is Again, going back to Thucydides, I really do book what he says is that's probably what happened. It's almost almost guarantee you what he wrote down happened in the Peloponnesian Wars, most of the all of the first one, most of the second one. He died there in the middle of the second one. But I took it as fact. I was going, why can't I just take the whole test of this fact? But I can tell you why, because it wasn't somebody writing it down. One person is writing down what he saw. This is stuff going back to the creation of the world. And this stuff is acceptable just as though Thucydides wrote down what he saw. Mm-hmm. And the reason is because Jesus Christ is God, and he's referring to these stories to mean the things they mean. Mm-hmm. You finally yeah. got through my thick skull. There we go. Yeah. It, it, you know, it helps. This, this, is, this is good practice for me. And I, yeah. I saw a big old... Uh, Dwayne, you and Glenn get to close it up. Well, I, I'm, I'm going to say, I think what I understand Jim to say is that from like a legal point of view, he's putting his best argument forward on the death and resurrection of Jesus. And that's where the beginning of the, the sprout of faith for him is coming from as he's doing his studies. And that what I hear Chris saying is that the, the squaring of the Old and the New Testament not taking away from Jesus' death and resurrection, but the squaring of the Old and the New Testament is a huge another level where his faith sprouts from, is all of it as a whole. It, over such an expanse period of time and authors, is just fascinating to see how it supports one another. Am I right? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. Glenn? Um. I'd agree with Dwayne because he just mic dropped me. Anyway, um, <laughs> I think uh, <laughs> what I think is that it, it is interesting to me and always has been that Jesus referenced during his teachings while he was, you know, quote unquote alive, he uh, referenced the Old Testament quite often. Not all of it, 
but quite a bit of it, enough that it it bowed to that thought process that it it is significant. It's not just the New Testament. I see some Christian faiths that super emphasize just the New Testament. And if Jesus didn't say it, it doesn't exist for them. Uh, here, I think we're showing that it does exist, that Jesus said it, others said it, and that God was in our lives, and he sent his son down to save us. And uh, it's so significant and so different from any other point in history, really, that why would why would you make that up? In other words, why would hallucination make that up, you know, for our atheist viewers? Why would you make it the hardest thing to believe? <laughs> yes, right there. Yes, it, 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 you're believing something that is entirely like it, it is something that is almost impossible and possibly difficult to swallow for this Jewish audience that they're trying to preach to. And also for the Greek audience, like they're or exclusively... Anybody. Yeah, they're exclusively monotheists. Christians are still. And James McGrath, he points that out. He, he makes a very good point about that very early on, is that Christians perceive themselves as exclusively monotheists. And this is this is some of the reason why they got in trouble with the Greek city. All right. Now we're trying to figure out what the split is with the with the with the Jews. But anyway, the point that you're making, Glenn, is that this hallucination produced something that was very difficult to swallow. And it's very, it's, it's not just that they believed this and were defending it. They were going out almost like they were on a death wish, like without raising an army and without trying to compel people to believe this. What they were doing was spreading the message like Jesus Christ was going to come back that night. And to what Chris said, this sacrifice is spreading the message. There we go. Yes, yes. It even so, ties into last week really well. <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, I, you yeah, know, because so, I will tell you this, that it changed. It kind of changed the way I worshiped over the last week, knowing that that I am really, truly under this is urgent that as many people hear about this eschatology, about Jesus returning as soon as possible, because the even the apostles saw it as that urgent. That's what in fact that's what they did do is that urgent. Now, what we learned today, I guess, is is that you know it it, it kind of there's just a lot to, to digest today, Jim. Good job, though. I do yes. I did get the I get I did get the simple thing though. Yes, and, and and I was where I was getting hung up on it was is that well I have no problem accepting even um, secular historians. I believe they're telling me the truth as to what happened, but that's that doesn't explain the Old Testament. The Old Testament takes supernatural um understanding basically is ba if i'm getting it right is that that resurrection doesn't happen in jesus tie in the old testament it would be very difficult to argue to someone why the old testament is fact mm -hmm. did, did i summarize it uh -huh, that does i think Dwayne has a question i have a question that popped into my head when you very first presented the topic do do you have a very first form of worship of jesus as the son of god you know so there's uh, like there's so much and i think i got six minutes okay um in first corinthians eight four through six you guys got to go read this okay this is from the um prayer book from the jewish prayer book the i, I believe it's called the shema okay now I'm, I'm probably butchering that name i've only read it i haven't heard anybody pronounce it 
but it's S-H-E-M-A. This was a common Jewish prayer book. And what Paul is reciting here is he's reciting the Jewish affirmation that God is one. He says, for us, there's but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for, and for whom we live. All right. That's from the Shema. What he adds next to that is profound. And there's but one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things came and through whom we live. Paul is taking, again, Paul's a Pharisee. He knows exactly what he's doing, all right? What he's taking is this monotheistic saying from the Shema, and he just put Jesus in there. Wow. Yeah. Very Good early. Stuff. Very, very early. Yes. And again, I want to emphasize this. So it's not just the hymn that you have in Philippians 2, 6 through 11, and it's not just that adding along Jesus Christ in the Shema, but you have Paul and the other New Testament writers frequently going back to the Old Testament where it has Yahweh there, and they're taking out Yahweh, putting Jesus, okay? And this seems to be a very common early practice, something that wasn't, something that Paul didn't feel like he had to defend. Let's just go with that, all right? Yeah, it so, goes right back to what you said at the beginning, yeah. Do you have anything you want to add before we go? No, I'm good. I've got one last question, Jim. Did, I don't remember once you mentioning a PJ's coffee in the Old Testament. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, James, I, I have to step in here. Uh, those are <laughs> old or New Testament. However, I, I do think that if you want to learn more and uh, focus better and understand your studying of the Bible, you could do that wonderfully with some PJ's coffee, which I've had this morning. Uh, with uh, And you can step it up even one more notch and go to the PJ's in Houghton where you can get wonderful breakfast pastries, lunch pastries, lunch sandwiches, breakfast sandwiches, of course, all natural Red Bull, boosted tea, and of course, the most wonderful aromatic coffee probably anywhere I've been. Awesome. I appreciate our listeners. Appreciate all you guys. And Jim, before you go, I got a, I've got a, a question off the record. But thank you guys. Um, and Dwayne, you, you, you did well today for a person who was supposed to just been lurking. And so appreciate you guys. We'll be back next Wednesday with more of this, but we've got lots of good uh, secular, I mean, uh, yeah, secular podcast too that, that we'd love for you to listen to. Appreciate the listeners. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Bye, you guys. Bye.